So we're going to be learning tonight Parashat Miketz, and um, there is, uh, it's, because uh, we're always one, one week behind, uh, technically, uh, doing the previous week's parasha. I think that there's an advantage to that, uh, that we've already reviewed that parasha, and we're, it's, it's fresh in our minds, and uh, now we can reflect back on it. The, um, as I've been emphasizing in this series uh, this year, I'm trying to uh, look at angles and aspects of stories that uh, haven't explored as much in the past, or maybe we haven't uh, given uh, sufficient attention in the past. In this particular parasha, as we saw with, um, with some others, it's more difficult to uh, break the narrative up into components because the entire story is really one, uh, one developing drama of Yosef becoming uh, freed from his, um, from his imprisonment and rising to leadership in Egypt. And then his uh, interaction with his brothers, which of course ends in the cliffhanger at the end of the parasha, where uh, Binyamin has been framed for a crime he didn't commit and the brothers don't know what to expect next from Yosef. And we see that, uh, of course, we know what's going to happen in uh, next week's parasha or this coming week's parasha with Yehuda. But uh, that isn't known to the reader at the end of Parashat Miketz. So at the end of Parashat Miketz, we have the rare phenomenon of a serious cliffhanger uh, at the conclusion of the parasha. What I wanted to focus on this year that I think is really critical, and it's something actually that, um, that I spent some time thinking about, particularly this past year, uh, in learning these parashiot, as a result of um, some learning that we did in Eretz Yisrael just about a year ago, actually, uh, in connection with these very uh, parashiot of uh, Miketz and Vaigash and, and Vaichi, that um, oftentimes we become caught up in the uh, human aspect of the drama that we are, uh, that we are observing in the stories of Bereshit. The stories of Bereshit are full of drama, there is a human element, there's the psychological element, there is the, um, there's the, uh, the family dynamics that are very engaging and, uh, and enchant us and sometimes upset us. And, uh, and, and that's part of what makes the book of Breshit so exciting to people and so interesting because it reveals to us the uh, humanity of all of these characters from our history and our ancestors, really. And there's so much to learn from them. But one element that is frequently lost in the shuffle is the divine plan element in the book of Breshit. And this is something that, um, that is brought to light in certain midrashim, in some of the commentaries of the rabbis on these parashiot, that they're always trying to tie into the story some kind of a spiritual message or some kind of a religious message that goes beyond the immediate familial drama and conflicts that we observe. And I recall that when we were in Israel last year, um, one, of the, uh, one of the people who's actually in this shiur right now, I'm not going to identify them, I don't want to put anybody on the spot, asked about a midrash there that speaks of Yosef and Binyamin hugging each other and crying on each other's shoulders. And it points out, it says that, that really Yosef was crying about the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash. Uh, the, the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash that would be built in the territory of Binyamin. And, uh, and the question, of course, was, I mean, what is the relevance of that to the reunion when we read the story of the estrangement of Yosef from his brothers and the, his absence from his father's life over all those decades and, their, and then their reunion? We don't think of the Bet HaMikdash. We don't think anything about... Uh, the future destiny of the Jewish people. And yet the Midrash sees fit to inject in the story something that is not expl- explicitly mentioned anywhere in the story, that Yosef and Binyamin are somehow thinking about the Bet HaMikdash, they're thinking about Yerushalayim, they're thinking about their descendants occupying the land of Israel. I mean, where does this come from? And so I think that Midrashim like this are really designed to keep us focused on the ultimate purpose of the stories in Bereshit because it's so easy to get lost in it that it's a soap opera. It's a, uh, it's a tale about brothers that have a conflict and we try to justify the conflict or understand it or uh, tease out the motives of the various players in the, uh, in, the, in the story. 
Um, and of course, it's fascinating and it's, it's really, really interesting to delve into uh, the human aspect of the story. But what about the divine purpose? Because when we're reading about Avraham Avinu, for example, we see very clearly it's about someone who left home, left everything that they knew, everything that they had. Um, and everything that was familiar to them and went out to spread knowledge of God in the world. And we understood that he was promised that he would have descendants who would do the same ultimately and who would come to the land of Israel and establish a nation there. But then we get lost in the drama of the brothers and we kind of forget, yeah, well, what does this exactly have to do with, um, with uh, God or with spreading knowledge of God in the world or with the original reason that Avraham Avinu left home and, uh, and established this movement, this monotheistic movement, and, and, and ultimately became the ancestor of the Jewish people. Like, we lost the whole thread of the discussion of Breshit somehow um, in these parashiot about Yosef, where we got involved in uh, co- conflict between brothers and, and, and dysfunctional families and so on. So <clears throat> I'd just like to zero in on that a little bit, because I think ever since we had this conversation about a year ago, which was not part of this class, it was part of our group that went to Israel, um, it's been on my mind in reading the stories and in making sure to, uh, to stay focused on the essence of the story, to remember that ultimately these are not stories just about human beings that had conflicts, even though they are human beings and they did have conflicts and there's emotional elements and psychological elements um, but there are, and there are ethical elements that need to be uh, discussed, but there are also, um, there are also spiritual uh, uh, elements. There's a, there is a, uh, a mission here that this family was chosen to accomplish in the world. And the question is whether or not uh, they're going to fulfill that, that mission. And if, if we remember that that's really the context of these stories, then they take on a different light. When the brothers decide to sell Yosef, of course, they are motivated in part by a jealousy, which the Torah explicitly says. But the reason why they're not condemned as murderers is because they had reason to believe that Yosef might undermine the whole cause for which the Jewish people had been created. That Yosef was a, uh, they perceived him as a megalomaniacal person who would become a tyrant and who would destroy everything that Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov were trying to build and that, ya- and that Yosef had duped his father Yaakov into giving him more power than he really deserved and that he had a plan that was diabolical. That was what the brothers actually thought and believed and it wasn't a simple jealousy that motivated them to try to rid themselves of Yosef but it was actually a fear not just for themselves and I think that's the main point that we have to remember. If the fear had just been a petty fear or a desire that their father loved uh, them more than he loved Yosef. Why, nobody would kill, uh, and certainly 11 brothers would not team up against one brother to kill him because of uh, simple base jealousy because the father gave, uh, gave the brother a, a, a leadership role or gave him a special coat or, or seemed to love him more. I mean, even, a, even an ordinary person would not go so far in jealousy to act in that way. Certainly such people that we look up to who as the Seforno, the commentary of the Seforno says, people whose names are written on the Choshen of the Kohen Gadol that goes into, that that serves in the Beit HaMikdash, these these are people that we don't consider to be ordinary people. These are exceptional people. We can't expect that they would be driven by the lowest emotions, emotions that we wouldn't even allow to uh, motivate our own behavior in that way. So, it goes without saying that their, their motive was deeper than that, that they saw Yosef as a threat to the whole mission of the Jewish people, and that was why they saw a need to uh, remove him from the picture. But the reason why I'm putting this as a preface to the story is because I think that it's important to recognize, uh, to see that Yosef is not simply someone who's looking to get out of jail. He's also not somebody who is simply looking to gain power or influence. And on the contrary, he doesn't appear to be seeking that too ambitiously, at least not at the beginning of Parashat Miketz. But he is somebody that is interested in educating people. And I think this is very, very important. And it's something that is glossed over maybe when we read the story. Even when he is attending to the VIP prisoners in the jail that have a dream, uh, each of them has a dream. And, uh, and what does Yosef say to them? Yosef says, uh, when, he, when he goes to interpret the dream, when they ask him to interpret the dream, he says, 
Um, and even though you might take it at first uh, as being a little bit self-congratulatory, maybe the language is not as modest as it could be, but he says, Really, interpretations belong to God. So let me, uh, let me interpret the dream for you. What he means by that is that it's a, it's a wisdom that God gives a human being to be able to interpret and understand dreams. That's what Yosef means. So he's, he's actually educating them in uh, how to approach dreams, that dreams are not some kind of a, uh, uh, some kind of a, super, don't have superstitious significance, but Lelohim Petronim means that God gives wisdom to certain individuals that they're able to understand dreams if they, and, and to explain them, and that Yosef would be able to provide that kind of a uh, illumination for the Sarah Mashkim and the Sarah Ofim. And the same thing happens. In the beginning of Miketz, where Paro summons Yosef to interpret his dreams about the cows and about the grain, and um, and what does Yosef say when when uh, when Paro says, "I've heard that you know how to interpret dreams." You've heard, you hear dreams and you interpret them. So Yosef says, "No, Bil Adai, it is not me. Elohim It is God that will be able to answer to the satisfaction of Paro." So right away we see that Yosef is very much following in the tradition of his ancestors of Yaakov and Yitzchak and Abraham. That he has the opportunity here to put himself on a pedestal. He has the opportunity here to claim some special power, some supernatural ability, but he doesn't do that. He says, really, this is knowledge of Hashem that comes from Hashem. And as the Unkulus, the translator into Aramaic says, he says... Um, uh, he says, uh, he says, It is not my wisdom. That's the Aramaic translation. From before God will come and answer for Paro. Meaning it's not some special trick or some special ability that I have. But there is a knowledge that comes from God that I happen to access it. But it's accessible to anybody. It really comes from Hashem the wisdom to be able to understand and interpret dreams. So Yosef right away shields or steps aside from being placed on any kind of a pedestal. And we see the same thing with Daniel. If you read the book of Daniel, which has many parallels to the story of Yosef, you see that um, he also is deified at first by the Babylonians when he's able to interpret dreams. And then only afterwards, uh, you know, when he sees that they're going to deify him, he rejects that. He refuses to accept any worship. And he says, no, it comes from God. And I, he tries to demystify the whole process of interpreting dreams so that they will not attribute too much significance to him. And the same thing we see in Abraham. It says, that uh, when, they, when Abraham wants to uh, find a burial plot for Sarah, and uh, after she passes away and the people say that you are a prince of God in our midst and according to the Midrash they actually said you are like a God-like figure and he said no I'm just, uh, I'm just an ordinary person I'm not a God-like figure the Avot never wanted other human beings to in any way put them on a pedestal or give them any kind of a divine um, quality and you see the same thing with Yaakov he didn't want to be buried in Mitzrayim because he didn't want to be deified by the Egyptians in any way put, made into something more than a human being so what Yosef does here is he says no I, I don't have any special magical ability I just have um, wisdom that was obtained from Hashem that a person who studies the ways of God and understands them could obtain but it's not anything that I have. I'm a magic man. I'm not a magic man. And so as we mo- after he interprets the dreams also, he explains what is the purpose of the dream. He says the purpose of the dreams is that Hashem wants to tell you something. He says, what, Paro, what Hashem wants to do or is about to do, he's telling Paro. And then he explains what the significance of the dream is and he reiterates, This is what, this is what I'm telling you. Hashem is showing Paro what he plans to do. Now why is that significant? Again, it's significant because many dream interpreters would say that the dream reveals some fatalistic idea of what's going to happen in the future. The Midrashim give examples. Like for, exa- for instance, one Midrash says, that the magicians told him that why was Paro not satisfied with the uh, interpretations of the Egyptian magicians? How did he know they were wrong? So it says that they all gave fatalistic interpretations, like you're going to have tw- you're going to have seven daughters and you're going to bury seven daughters. Meaning that th- there's nothing you can do. 
This is just the way it's going to be. It's an oracle. It's just predicting the future, and it's a future that's out of your control. Whereas Yosef is teaching Paro, Hashem gives wisdom to a person and understanding to a person, and with that wisdom and understanding, now he's able to use it to plan more effectively for the future. So Yosef is saying, God gave you the tools. He gave you the dream. And he also enabled me to have the tools to interpret that dream. So now you have understanding of the future and you can do something about it. It's not a decree that you are passively and hopelessly and, and helplessly uh, you know, uh, subject to a decree that's a completely uh, just a fate. No, on the contrary, God is giving you the tools through this dream and through the wisdom of how to interpret dreams that we can see what the future is going to hold so that we can adapt to it. And that's why Yosef offers unsolicited advice. He says, now what Paro really should do is, uh, is assign uh, an individual who can uh, oversee the process of saving up grain during the years of plenty so that when the years of famine come, Mitzrayim will be, Egypt will be in an ideal position. And, uh, and this is what, ya- this, so this is what Yosef uh, advises and the interesting thing is the question is I mean he wasn't asked for advice so how all of a sudden did Yosef decide that it's his it's his business to start offering advice just tell Paro this is what God is showing you what's going to happen and leave it at that why does Yosef offer advice because he's trying to show that part of what God intends what Hashem is trying to do when he presents you with um, uh, with some kind of knowledge about the future is to empower you now to make more effective decisions about the future. He doesn't just want to tell you you are going to be helpless and hopeless and there's nothing you can do about it. This is just what's going to happen and you're condemned to this and you're going to have to suffer through it. No, he's trying to show you, uh, to offer you a window of opportunity so that you can uh, utilize this knowledge to your advantage. And that is what Yosef shows him. And of course, then uh, Paro is so impressed He's, so, he, he's impressed, first of all, because you see here something really uh, revolutionary. And I think that we, we, don't, we don't appreciate as much what is revolutionary in what Yosef is saying. He's teaching Paro a totally different concept of how God communicates with human beings and what God expects from human beings. Instead of the kind of fatalistic or superstitious ideas that people had about the meaning of dreams... Yosef is showing Paro that Hashem gives knowledge to people so they can use it. Hashem gives knowledge to people so they can plan better, so they can adapt, so they can prepare themselves and they can be more successful. Not just as some kind of an omen that is decreed upon them. So he's really teaching, yeah, he's teaching Paro a completely different idea of divine intervention and divine communication here. And we underestimate that. But that's why he repeats many times what God is doing. He's showing Paro, this is coming, me'ima Elohim, this is coming from God. And notice that whenever Yosef speaks about God, from the time that he um, becomes a part of, the, uh, of Paro's court, he always uses the name Elohim. He doesn't use the name Hashem. He uses the name Elohim, which is a generic idea of God, and usually refers to God as revealed in the laws of nature, which makes perfect sense here that he's telling him that by nature, it is revealed to us that by nature, there are going to be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. What benefit is there in knowing that? Adapting to that reality by planning for it and preparing for it, just like anything else that you could foresee based on an understanding of science, for example, you would utilize that knowledge. You wouldn't just sit back and wait for it to happen, but you would utilize that knowledge to be proactive, to mitigate the damage, or even to take advantage of the situation and the opportunity if that was the case. And in this case, it does become a great opportunity for Egypt to, uh, uh, to benefit from being the only country in the, uh, in, the, in the entire region that has food. So during the during famine time. So this is what Yosef is doing, and I think it's really um, critical to note, to, to note that. And, and you see that, par, that Yosef also in his interaction, even with the wife of Potiphar, mentions God. He mentions Hashem, and it says that when Potiphar saw, he saw that Hashem was with Yosef. Um, and, and I think that this is a... Uh, what could that possibly mean that, uh, that, Potiphar, that Potiphar, who was an idolater who lived in Egypt, it says, Vayi Hashem et Yosef, and it's that, uh, 
that Hashem was with Yosef, Vayar Adonav ki Adonai ito. That his master saw that God was with Yosef. How did, how did the master of Yosef know who Hashem was? That, that was the name of God that was only used, that was unique to, the, uh, to Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. That was not a name of God. Yudke Vavke was a name, uh, the Adonai, what we read, is a, is a name of God that's unique to our concept of God. It's not, an, it's not a concept of God that an Egyptian would recognize. In fact, when, when Moshe confronts Paro, he says, Lo yadati et Adonai. I've never heard this name Hashem before. It's not a name that I recognize. So because they only recognized a God that was in one way or another connected to the physical world. And Yudke Vavke is Hayao Veviye, which means God is eternal. He's distinct from the physical world. But Elohim means God that is present in the sense that the order in the world is, uh, it comes from him. He's the creator. So they understood that concept. But where did, the, uh, where did Potiphar get the idea of Hashem uh, and that Hashem was with Yosef and that Hashem was blessing the house of, uh, it said that he saw that, uh, that Hashem was blessing his house. How did he see that? How did he know that? There's only one possible answer to that question, which is that he learned it from Yosef. In other words, Yosef took his responsibility as a Jew very seriously. And in every context, he was engaged in the mitzvah, we would call it, even though they may not have had a specific mitzvah, like we have 613 mitzvot, but they had the mandate of Kiddush Hashem, sanctifying God's name everywhere they went. And that meant that Yosef certainly must have explained to Potiphar what his principles were, what his idea of God was, and where his success was coming from. And therefore, Potiphar saw that in the achievements of Yosef. And probably that's why uh, he didn't execute Yosef when Yosef was accused of um, trying to seduce his wife because he didn't really believe it. As the commentaries say, the Ibn Ezra says, and other commentaries also say, point out that it's pretty clear that Potiphar didn't really believe his wife. He had to imprison Yosef because he couldn't just allow himself to be humiliated in that way since his wife made a public accusation against Yosef. But he knew deep down that Yosef really, really wasn't responsible for it um, because he, he knew what kind of a person Yosef was and that he wouldn't engage in that kind of behavior. And then later on when Yosef is in the jail... And we also see that, uh, uh, that in the jail also, it says that uh, that uh, there Hashem was also with Yosef. And, um, and it says that the, the head of the jail left everything, left Yosef in charge of everything. It says that the, 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 the guy who oversaw the jail saw that Hashem was with Yosef and everything that Yosef did, Hashem was matzliach. Hashem caused it to be successful. Now, how did the head of the jail know about Hashem? All of a sudden, the head of the jail is a rabbi. All of a sudden, the head of the jail is familiar with the, uh, the ideas and the theology of Avraham Avinu and recognizes uh, the idea of Yudke Vavke. Clearly, that wouldn't be the case. What is, again, what is the inescapable conclusion? That Yosef, true to what he understood, was his mandate as a Jew, everywhere he went, was busy explaining and sharing his understanding of Hashem with everyone with whom he came in contact. And that is something that you see also with David HaMelech, that he taught, even when he, was in, even when he had to hide out in uh, territory uh, outside of Eretz Yisrael, the king there, he educated in the ways of God. This was something that uh, all of our tzaddikim do. They always share their knowledge of God with those um, whenever they can. Uh, with, with whatever audience they can. And so Yosef must have educated Potiphar. Yosef educated the head of the jail. And here Yosef is now given the opportunity to educate the most important person in the world, pretty much, which is Paro. And I think that is critical because um, we oftentimes only, as I said before, focus on the human drama going on here. But there's something much deeper going on here, which is that Yosef is busy making a Kiddush Hashem. He's attempting to sanctify God's name in Egypt by sharing his unique approach to uh, an understanding of God with the Egyptians and with Egyptian leadership. And then we see what? Vayomer Paro el Yosef. Oh, and first of all, Paro says to his servants, Hanimtza kaze ish asheruach Hashem, ruach Elohimbo. Is there found anybody like this that has the spirit of God in him? 
And what is Ruach Elohim? It means Ruach Chokhmah, or as the uncle translates it here, Ruach Nevu'ah, the spirit of prophecy, the spirit of knowledge of God is in this man. This man really has a unique understanding, something different. And then he said, Now that God has made known to you all of this, there is nobody as wise and understanding as you, and therefore you will be in charge of all of Egypt. But what was the basis for his giving him this uh, position of leadership of Egypt? It was recognizing his superior knowledge and understanding of God that he exhibited in explaining the dreams of Paro. So this is something that really is critical for seeing Yosef in the proper light. That he's not just a politician here, but he's busy trying to share his knowledge of God at every level of government. And then, of course, it places him in a position of great influence. Um, and he begins to, uh, uh, to um, work at preparing Egypt for the days of the famine that are, that are coming up. And even here we see that he names his children with the name of God. And then that he names his children which means God made me forget my troubles and the house of my father. And also he called his second son Ephraim because Elohim has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering um, or of my, which is, uh, which is um, you know, in Egypt. So, and notice that Yosef here reverts and this, this stays true for quite a while to the name Elohim. As long as he is working under the auspices of Egypt uh, from the moment that he comes into contact with Paro, he uses the word Elohim, which is the generic name of God, not the name of God that is unique, uh, that, he was, that was being used in connection with Yosef before. Uh, but the name of God, which is the generic general name that usually just translated as God, as opposed to Hashem, Yudke Vavke, which has a more, di- a more distinctive meaning. Um, in any case, Yosef then goes about the business of preparing the, um, the, the land for the days of famine, and then he has the encounter with his brothers. And of course, the encounter with the brothers is uh, really remarkable and really uh, exciting and uh, heart-wrenching. And it brings upon us all kinds of different emotions. But one of the things that I I point out about this whole story that I think is is important to to note and maybe is sometimes, uh, again, either certain details that I think are really critical that sometimes we overlook is that Yosef is clearly doing more than just sending his, son, his brothers back to bring Binyamin. There's more to the strategy than that. We see that he is um, he's doing things that are unusual. He, when, when, he sends the, um, when he sends his brothers back, he fills their bags with all of the money that they had originally paid uh, for the food that they, that they took. Um, he, pu- he puts them all in jail and then after three days, he says, you know what, instead of, because his original threat was, I'm going to send you down to, I'm going to see, one of you can go and bring Binyamin back here, and then I'll release the rest of you. But in the meantime, I'm keeping all of you here, and you cannot go home. Then he changed his mind and said, you know what, you can all go back home. Just leave one person here as my hostage, and you have to bring Binyamin back to ransom him. That was the change. Now, was that a change that Yosef made after additional thought, or was that part of a strategy from the beginning? I think that that was part of a strategy from the beginning. One thing you notice about Yosef is that he always, whenever he's going to lie, he always says, Chei Paro, by the life of Paro. He promised, I'm not going to let you out of the jail. Chei Paro, im umize. But as Paro lives, I'm not going to let you out. But when he speaks, uh, when he, but, when he uh, but he never says any falsehood in the name of God. And when he releases all of the brothers to go home and keeps only Shimon, he says, Eta Elohim I fear God. Now, that could just be a chance thing that he would say such a thing. But when they come back also, there's another, um, there's another uh, in addition to the fact that he sends them back with their money, which they think is some kind of a setup, and then they're brought into his house, and they think that's a setup. And then he seats them at the table in the order of their birth. And the Midrash actually dramatizes. It says, they looked at each other in shock. Like, what is happening here that uh, we're being seated in the order of our birth? This is when they come back with Binyamin. After they've gone home and they've come back, he seats them in order of their birth. 
and, uh, and it says that they were in shock. And the Midrash actually expands on this and says that Yosef would tap on his cup, his magical cup, and the cup would tell him who was supposed to sit where, and then he would seat them. And then he had Binyamin seated, sit at his table because he said, you don't have a mother and I don't have a mother, so let's sit together. There's also the very obvious phenomenon that all Egyptians sit at one table. And Yosef does not sit with the Egyptians. Um, they won't sit with Yosef, in fact, because they won't eat. It says, Didn't they wonder why the Egyptians would not eat with their own leader, the great Tzafnat Paneach, that we know is Yosef? They won't eat with him because he is a Jew. But he doesn't reveal that, and they don't pick up on that. So there's all these kind of weird things going on. He's tapping a cup, according to the Midrash, and deciding uh, who should sit where, and it just happens to be that it's in the order of their birth, the oldest first, followed by the uh, second uh, in line, and so on. It happens to be that this Egyptian says, I fear God. It happens to be this Egyptian sent them back with their money, and then when they come and they want to return the money, what does the person at the door say that according to the Midrash was the son of Yosef? What does he say? He says... No, God, the God of your forefathers, gave you a gift. I got the money that you, that, that you paid. The money that you found in your bag was a gift from God. That's, that's weird, okay? It's weird in two ways. It's weird, number one, because that's kind of magical thinking that you know, the brothers really wouldn't subscribe to. And number two, because he's, again, invoking God and the God of your forefathers, acknowledging that they have a unique God, that this person in the house of Yosef has a recognition of their God in some way. So there's something more going on here. And then, of course, when he frames Binyamin by putting the cup in the bag, that should have been, again, it's a reenactment of a very famous scene of their own mother who stole, or, or I mean of Yosef's own mother and Binyamin's mother, that took the trafim, took the idols of Lavan, and then he came and he searched through everybody's uh, tents and he searched high and low, and really she was hiding it all along. Right, but he never found it. But this is a this chasing after and and uh, looking for the cup is a clear reenactment of that story. And then when they come back, and Yosef, uh, you know, is presented with them as now caught as thieves, red-handed that they took the cup. Okay, he says uh, and, and there are two interesting things there. One is that he says, "God forbid that I would." Uh, that I would be unjust, I would, I, I would never be unjust, only the person who stole the cup is going to be condemned, everybody else is going to be able to go back to their father. But he also says, He said, don't you know that a person like me, I know how to use the occult arts to know what's going on, and I could see that you guys took the cup, I knew it from my crystal ball, so to speak. These are all, this is all mumbo-jumbo that he's saying, okay? Now, what's the point of all of these things? Also, at the table, he favors Binyamin, he gives him extra clothing, okay? There, he, there's a lot going on here, a lot of little details that are, that are embedded in the story. And my theory about Yosef is that Yosef is trying to facilitate the teshuvah of the brothers, that Yosef is trying to make himself obvious to the brothers. He's trying to get the brothers to recognize him, and it's not working. He sends hint after hint, but it doesn't work. He mentions fearing God, and that doesn't work. He clearly won't swear in the name of God in an untrue thing. That doesn't work. He sends them back with all their money, clearly favoring them, which contradicts his claim that, they were, that, he, that he thought they were spies. They don't pick up on that either. They make up some mumbo-jumbo answer of how the money got back in their bags and somehow the brothers accept it. He makes up a mumbo-jumbo reason of how he knows the order of the brothers to be seated at the, in the correct order at the table and somehow they accept that too. And according to the Bidrash, they accept him tapping on the cup and magically determining it. And then they come back and he says, don't you know that I use the occult arts to know things? They don't pick up on that. They don't pick up on the fact that the whole scene is a replay of something that happened in their history already. So all of these hints, in my view, are Yosef attempting to reveal his identity to the brothers that they will become aware of it on their own. 
because part of the problem of the brothers was they were convinced that Yosef would never amount to anything. They knew he was sold as a slave to Egypt and they figured that he would wallow in slavery and never accomplish anything because he wasn't destined to be anything of significance or anybody of significance. And therefore they could be looking him right in the face and they could be seeing every clue and every piece of evidence that's crying out for them to realize that something is going on here and this guy knows us and he knows the order of our, of our family and he, know, and he wanted to send us back with our money and all that and he didn't want to withhold the money and he talks about God. I mean, there's something weird going on here. They don't pick up on the hints at all. He doesn't sit together with the Egyptians at dinner. They don't pick up with that hint either. So the Yosef is trying to challenge them to identify him. In other words, their whole problem was that because of their resentment of him and because of his immaturity, they were unable to see the greatness of Yosef. And therefore, they could never imagine in a million years that the person standing in front of them, so illustrious and so powerful, so important, was actually none other than their annoying brother uh, with, with big dreams that they had gotten rid of decades ago. And so therefore, they were not able to see what was hidden in plain sight, as we say. Even after all of the hints that Yosef was broadcasting them and all the ridiculous twists that he was putting in front of them that didn't have any rational explanation other than it was Yosef in front of them, but they didn't see it and they didn't believe it. And then it was only when Yehuda makes his impassioned speech in this coming week's parasha that finally Yosef reveals his identity. But even there it says, Yosef Yosef was not able to hold himself back because even Yehuda's tremendous sacrifice and willingness to give up his own freedom for the sake of securing the family and preventing his father from dying in despair, even that wasn't really the breakthrough that Yosef wanted the brothers to make. Even that, great as it was and impressive as it was, wasn't really what Yosef wanted to hear. Yosef wanted to hear, we realized the person standing in front of us was Yosef and we were wrong all along, assuming that he would amount to nothing. And really he had great talent and we were blinded by it, uh, blinded from it by our own, um, uh, because of our own issues and because of our own jealousies and because of our own uh, mis, uh, misunderstanding of the situation. Um, and, and that is really the, uh, what I, the reason why I think Yosef wanted to hold out even then. But he couldn't control himself he, when he saw the tremendous leadership that was displayed by Yehudai. He felt that it was the moment had come that he, had, he couldn't uh, restrain himself from telling the truth anymore. He couldn't continue with the charade anymore when he saw the willingness of Yehudai to do that. And he couldn't justify uh, dragging on the proceedings any, any longer, even though he didn't accomplish exactly what he had hoped. And that's why in the very beginning, when the brothers first come, it says, Vayizkor Yosef et achalomot, that Yosef remembered the dreams because he realized that the dreams that he had, um, the dreams indicated that his brothers would recognize him as the leader of the family and, um, and, the, uh, and, that, uh, and that they would do it willingly. And he wanted that to bring that about. Now, this is the interpretation of the story that I think is the most convincing. There are some, there is one very prominent rabbi and, and some of his students that have, um, have a different view of the story and they, they argue that no, that Yosef actually, uh, there was a different thing going on here, that really Yosef never, wasn't really trying to bring about the, um, the teshuvah of the brothers. He was just trying to save Binyamin from the clutches of the brothers because Yosef, believed that, it, that and, and here's where here's the interesting concept and I, I want to give credit to the author of the idea even though I don't really agree with it but I, I think um, it, since it's very famous uh, chidush novel interpretation that actually has gained more and more adherence over the, over the years um, it, it was by a rabbi named Rabbi Yoel Bin Nun who is the teacher of many of the prominent Tanakh teachers that are out there today. So you may have heard it from one of them, but really they got it from him. His idea was that Yosef all along didn't realize that the brothers acted alone and might have suspected all this time that his father had been behind it, had actually sent him into the clutches of the brothers to be disposed of, and that his father really was a part of the conspiracy. And, and therefore never reached out to his father and therefore never tried to communicate with his father even when he became the prince of Egypt, so to speak. He became this great leader of Egypt. Uh, he never tried to reach out to his father because he thought his father rejected him. He thought his father sent him uh, into the hands of the brothers to be sold. 
And therefore, it is only when Yehuda says that one of our brothers went missing and my father said that he was torn by an animal, then Yosef realized that, oh, my father didn't think that, my father wasn't behind it, he thought I died. He thought that I was killed by a wild animal. He misunderstood all this time. And then, then Yosef realized he could reconcile with the brothers because his fa- or at least with his father, because he realized his father had not been complicit in his sale. That's the interpretation of Harav Yol bin Nun. And um, he, uh, in his own lectures on the subject, is very against the idea that Yosef is what he calls playing God in the story. That the way the Ramban interprets the story, and that's basically the approach that I've been taking also, and I think most of the traditional commentaries take, is that Yosef here is trying to bring about some kind of a teshuvah. Most of them say, like in the, the Ramban says, that Yosef wanted to recreate a situation where the youngest and most favored son is being uh, treated with special care and, uh, and to see if they would want, and, and then ha- they had the opportunity to get rid of him because the cup was placed in his bag. Would they do it again? Meaning, just like we know that the rule for teshuvah is, how do you know if you've really done teshuvah? Is that you're in the same circumstance again, but you act differently. That shows you've really changed. So he wanted to recreate it. That he, he had the youngest son, who was also the son of Rachel, the favorite son, the son that he knew his father was also especially attached to, because he was the only remnant of Rachel that, that was left. And... Um, and, and to create that res- those resentments, to give him extra gifts also, to build up the situation that, uh, you know, and then to give them the opportunity to wipe their hands clean and just let him be taken and arrested for the cup that was placed in his bag. Um, or maybe they, maybe they would even believe, you know what, he probably did it. How do we know he didn't do it? You know, they could rationalize it. The point is they had the opportunity to get rid of Binyamin and they didn't and that showed that they actually had done a full Teshuvah. That's how the Ramban interprets it. I was taking it just a step further than that and saying that I think that Yosef actually is trying to bait them into recognizing his identity and that's part of the Teshuvah as well. To be able to realize that Yosef was not the, um, not the person that they believed he was. That he really was destined for great things. And um, and where I t- and Rabbi Bin Nun's argument that uh, Yosef thought his father was behind this and that uh, and that he wouldn't be playing God and he was really just trying to save Binyamin or maybe take revenge on the brothers by putting them through the ringer, uh, all of these things may um, are, he, he are based upon his understanding that Yosef would be wrong to be playing God in the situation. But I, the, I have a problem with this interpretation for a couple of reasons. One is that if that were true, then, uh, then as soon as Yehuda says that, uh, that his father, um, it, it was Yaakov who believed that Yosef was, was dead, was killed, and not that their, their father was behind it. So uh, Yosef should have interrupted immediately and, um, and not let Yehuda finish his speech and, uh, and offer to become a slave. That's number one. Number two, maybe Yehuda's just lying because uh, he doesn't want to admit that they sold their brother into slavery and that the father was behind it. Who knows? You know, I mean, uh, how does, how does, yeah, because after all, Yehuda's talking to a stranger as far as he's concerned. He's not going to lay the family's dirty laundry out in front of the stranger. So maybe he's giving him a sanitized version of the story or whatever. The point is that, um, that Yosef, um, even if you're going to say that no, Yehuda is clearly motivated by concern for his father, so it must be that his father really wasn't behind it. Fine, but uh, still, Yosef's delayed reaction is unusual, and it also says Yosef that Yosef wasn't able to hold himself back. Now, according to the idea that Yosef just wanted to know that his father wasn't in, implicated in selling him, so then uh, why did he want to resist after hearing that? It shouldn't say Yosef that he wasn't able to withhold the truth anymore and he had to reveal his identity there's no reason for him to withhold it anymore now that he knows that his father was innocent and that he didn't have anything to do with it so I have a lot of problems with that but I have a more basic problem aside from the textual issue I have a more basic problem which is that the assumption that Yosef would not play God so to speak and I think that that really is um, that comes from an assumption that human beings are not supposed to facilitate the divine plan and I, I don't think that that's correct. I think that, you, that, in fact, that's contrary to the whole idea that Yosef is, tell, is teaching 
Paro, and that he taught Potiphar, and that he taught the head of the jail, that God blesses a person through their, their own efforts. And part of our efforts uh, include the efforts that we make on behalf of other people. So leading somebody to, through a test or leading somebody, uh, trying to guide a person, to challenge them, to bring out the best in them, is not playing God in a bad way. It's playing God in a good way. It's fulfilling the mitzvah of imitating the ways of God by helping others. He was trying to help his brothers to uh, rehabilitate themselves from the... Uh, from their self-imposed limitations. He was trying to help them grow. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with, uh, with Yosef playing that role. In fact, that is the role that a leader is supposed to play, that a religious leader is supposed to play, supposed to guide people, challenge them, put them into situations where they are uh, faced with uh, dilemmas that they need to resolve and that they rise to the occasion and that they grow. That's exactly what a leader is supposed to do. And what Yosef is trying to do here is to put them through this challenge, a challenge to, uh, to be faced with the same test towards Binyamin that they were towards him, but also the test of being able to recognize his identity given all these hints and where the only rational explanation is that it's Yosef. Will they be able to get past their resentments and see Yosef for who he truly is and accept that he really was destined to be the leader of the family after all? Um, and how important that was because that meant being able to make a distinction between their emotions and their understanding and to realize that Yosef had the superior ability even though when he was younger he didn't have the maturity of personality um, that maybe uh, would have made things easier for them to accept. He had a a personality that graded against them and that came across as... uh, uh, a little bit too uh, arrogant and um, and boast boastful, and so they they responded to that instead of seeing what their father saw, trusting their father's judgment and seeing what their father saw. And even if they thought that Yosef was flawed in certain ways, they should have recognized that it was most critical for Yaakov to be the one to determine who was going to uh, be his heir apparent, just like the other Avot did, rather than taking that law into their own hands. And of course, they would have eventually come to realize that Yosef was a great person. He just had maturing to do. And that's why it says there, Vihu Na'ar. And the Seforno says, what does it mean? Why does it describe Yosef as Na'ar? Na'ar can mean he was serving the, uh, the other brothers, but also, but the Seforno says that it means that he was a youth, meaning he wasn't as mature as, he, as would have been, uh, uh, you know, he was, he was wise intellectually but he wasn't emotionally mature and the brothers weren't able to see past that and they got caught up in the conflict with him so Yosef being instrumental uh, in in orchestrating this revelation of the brothers or the teshuvah of the brothers there shouldn't be anything objectionable about that Uh, in fact um, I, I think it's very much a part of what uh, a navi is supposed to do, a prophet or even a rabbi or a teacher, even a parent, is to guide children or students or subjects or whoever it is to the point uh, where they make the breakthroughs necessary for their, uh, for their own development. That's not playing God, that's imitating the ways of God. So I don't believe that it's an, a genuine, uh, that it's a valid objection uh, to the interpretation of the story of Yosef that uh, he was playing God. I think that what he was doing was right. He understood that uh, Hashem wanted the, uh, the Bnei Israel to reach certain uh, levels of development, and he was orchestrating that to the best of his ability. Just like he taught Paro that uh, just because God reveals to you certain truths doesn't mean that you don't have to act on them. You, so he, you know, he, just like he said to Paro, you have to act on these dreams and prepare for the coming uh, famine. He said, He remembered his own chalomot, he remembered his own dreams, and he realized that he had to act on them to make them come, uh, you know, come to fruition. And so that is not, uh, that's not a defect in Yosef. That's actually uh, part and parcel of what uh, Yosef is all about. And really, ultimately, as I was explaining when we spoke about Yaakov and Lavan, that's really very much what the Jewish concept of God's blessing is. That, bracha, that the contrast between Lavan and Yaakov, that Lavan believed in a fatalistic or superstitious or passive receiving of God's bracha, 
Whereas Yaakov believed that no, Hashem blesses you when you act in a way that is in accordance with His will and you bring out the bacha that Hashem has implanted in the world. That is how He brings the bacha to you. And so Yosef, in uh, acting as the agent of Hashem, uh, to bring his brothers around to, uh, uh, to maturity and uh, to a level of their development where now they can be reconstituted as the, um, the nation of Hashem and as the, as the B'nai Israel that are going to be the ancestors of the, uh, of the nation of Israel, um, that he's brought them to that level that they can now be unified and they can now um, ultimately forge the nation that's going to come from them. And now their father can come back into the picture and the family can be united again and rededicated to their mission of, um, of spreading knowledge of God in the world, which is critical because what does it say when Yaakov and Yosef gather, are reunited that they were saying the Shema? Um, we'll get to that when we, uh, uh, when we get to that story. But the idea is that the significance of the reunion of the family is that it's now able, Yosef all this time has been on his own trying to do his best to further awareness of God in the world. Now that they're reunited as a, as a family, they can do it together. They can achieve this together. And that was really the significance of this moment for Yaakov, why it says that Yaakov, his prophecy returned to him only when he learned that Yosef was still alive. Now he was able to see how there would be a future for the Jewish people and they'd be able to, they would be able to uh, accomplish their mission and why the Shema is prominent in the reunion between Yosef and Yaakov, the idea that the oneness of God, that they'll be able to promote that ideal uh, together again. Uh, all of this comes back, uh, was, was on pause. Yo- Yosef was involved in trying to uh, continue with the mission of Abraham Avinu in Egypt on his own. But now that the family is back together, we have the opportunity for them to, as a unit, uh, rededicate themselves to this purpose, having moved beyond this uh, this challenge, but I think that that's the um, that is, and Yosef therefore leads leads the way uh, by starting out the process of situating himself in Egypt. And now, when his family comes, they can create their own community within a community in Egypt, which was I- ideally supposed to be. And the reason why Yosef wanted them to be separate ideally was supposed to be a community that would be governed by different values than the uh, general population. And of course, we know that what happens is that eventually they assimilate. And that's what leads to the book of Shemot and, and ultimately the uh, enslavement in Egypt. But in the meantime, the significance of the story is that Yosef is facilitating a process of growth in the family so that the wounds can heal and so that the mission that they really were supposed to be focused on all along can be restored to its uh, rightful place and, and the goal can be, uh, can be restored. Yes, I see a hand up. Let, let me see if I can. Did that work? Yeah. So I think... So it's a good question. Question is, since Yosef, uh, tell me if I'm restating the question right. So since Yosef really didn't have absolute control over the events that that were going to transpire, there was only so much he could really do to exert control over what was going to happen. So uh, wasn't there always a possibility um, that things would go awry, that, you know, the brothers would never have this interaction with him or that, you know, Yehuda would not have done what he was going, you know, what, what he was willing to do and that things would have just fallen apart and Yosef would have ended up retiring a lonely Jewish guy in Egypt with his two sons and, you know, be forgotten. Um, right. right, so, 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 so to, yeah. To make it even stronger, it's, yeah. would he have foregone all the other benefits of reunion with his family as a, the way it played out? Uh, would, would, he, would he have sacrificed, you know, his father's happiness idea that he is the continuation of the Jewish family, mm-hmm. all for the sake of all hinging on their making complete teshuvah or not? Right. So that that's a great question. I think I think the answer that I would give to it is the to the clarified version of the question is probably the same answer I would give to the previous uh, iteration. Is that it's a um, that's where the chalomot of Yosef come in. That yes, if if. It were, in other words, what gave Yosef the idea that this would be the right course of action to try to facilitate the teshuvah was because he had the dreams. And that's why it says, It says he remembered the dreams that he had dreamt 
and therefore pursued this course of action of, you know, pretending to be somebody that he wasn't and, you know, acting indifferently and then trying to create tension and, and, and sending out all of these signals to them because he had the dreams. Had it not been for the dreams, I think you're right. I think there would have been, he might have attempted, you know, some kind of, uh, he might have still tried to attempt some kind of uh, uh, ruse that would have brought out, you know, helped them to, uh, uh, to recover from what he saw as their failings. But um, he wouldn't have been as sure uh, that it would succeed if he hadn't had the dreams. I think that's why the dreams are critical. Because, and that's why dreams play such a prominent role in this whole, uh, in this whole uh, story, starting with, uh, starting with Paro's dreams also, that Paro's dreams are, um, uh, are significant because of what, of the action of the course of action that emerges from them. So this, the dreams of Yosef were, could have been interpreted in a kind of a fatalistic way, almost the way that he originally seemed to understand dreams when he told the, when he interpreted the dreams of the baker and the wine steward, because he sort of told them like, you guys, uh, you're going to be innocent and you're going to be killed. Like that was the end of it. There was no, uh, there was no third option um, you know, or, or second option for either of them. They, either they were condemned or they were going to be innocent. That was it. So in, in his reading of dreams initially, it sounds like he had a more fatalistic idea of dreams as well. And that therefore he languished in jail because, uh, uh, you know, because he was expecting in Potiphar's house or in the jail when he saw all the success that came to him that that would be the, the road to uh, some kind of uh, uh, greatness for himself as well because he had had those dreams. But now when he, when it, by the time he meets Paro, he understands that dreams are not the same thing that he could have said and, and, and what maybe he should have said to the, to the, uh, baker that, the, or, you know, that, that yes, right now it doesn't look too good, but, you know, maybe if you do this or you do that, you might be able to be spared. You know, instead he just demoralizes in a very um, insensitive way, you know, kind of just like demoralizes the baker and tells him he's going to be dead. Whereas, you know, he tells the wine steward he's going to live and he, tells the, and he indifferently tells the baker that he's going to die, which, which certainly um, we, we can imagine uh, didn't uh, put the baker in the best frame of mind when he came to his court case and uh, his court appearance in front of the paro and probably, uh, probably uh, caused the judgment to uh, be even more strongly against him than, than it might have been otherwise, rather than seeing it as an opportunity for action. So once he's already speaking to Paro, a couple of years later, he has a different idea of how dreams work, it would seem. And uh, he realizes that they're a call to action, and he realizes the same thing about his own dreams, that it's a call to action. So when he sees the opportunity to bring it about, uh, to bring about the change in his brothers that he foresaw in the dream. So he, uh, he tries to do it because he believes that the dream indicates that he'll be successful if he does what he can to the best of his ability. Meaning, granted that he doesn't control all the factors. So the possibility of failure in a natural situation, the possibility of failure would have been very real. But since he had the dreams that indicated that this was God's plan that this should happen, so therefore he took that as a mandate that he should do whatever was in his power to try to bring about uh, the transformation of the brothers and trust in God for the rest. Because based upon the dreams, he had reason to believe that, that he would be successful. I think that's the only answer. I think otherwise, yeah, you're right, that uh, he could have tried something and had it failed, he would have had to say, well, plan B, uh, you know, maybe we should just uh, bury the hatchet and all get along or something like that. I'm not sure what he would have done then, but he didn't think that he needed to do that because of the dreams, because the dreams indicated otherwise. I think that's the only reason. That's the only explanation. Yes, I see another question here, another hand. Yes. I think it's Tara. How are you? Well, it depends what you mean by dreams. I guess if you, we don't really know, we don't really necessarily have prophetic dreams on a regular basis. In this case, you know, these are dreams that were identified as having prophetic significance. So they were, uh, they were different. Um, but we would translate that into the more conventional sense of dreams, meaning when a person has a dream 
uh, in the sense that, you know, I dream of becoming uh, a great athlete. Well, if they only dream about it, but they don't do anything about it, it's not going to happen. Or I dream about becoming very successful in something, but they don't take action. So then the dream just remains a dream of what could have been. Now, in this case, the dream is presenting some divine uh, plan to, or objective to the person that then they have the opportunity to fulfill uh, or to play part in bringing about through their action. Um, it, when we produce the dream, it's going to be up to us whether we, um, whether we take the action necessary to realize the dream or not. But obviously not every dream that we have, it, it, not in every dream would it be meaningful to say uh, that we... Um, you know, that we want to take action to fulfill it. That's not always the case. Sometimes a dream is just a dream uh, that's expressing psychological uh, matter, you know, material that's going on in our, uh, you know, in our minds. It doesn't really have any further meaning. Um, right, but we only know that these dreams are prophetic in hindsight, no? He, he didn't know that at the time. He's, right, I mean, it's, well, and that was exactly the argument between the brothers and Yosef. I mean, Yosef had strong conviction in the truth of his dreams and believed that they were prophetic dreams and therefore um, they were a guidance to him in his action. The brothers thought that the dreams were the typical dream, which is just a reflection of fantasy of the person. So if you're dreaming about everybody bowing to you and everybody... everybody, uh, you know, uh, worshiping you. So it's just a fantasy of your, your, it's an egotistical fantasy. That's not a, it's not a prophetic dream. You're just, you're just expressing what you want to be true. You're not really expressing what is going to be true. That it was exactly the argument between the two parties. In other words, the brothers saw it as an, a reflection of his own egotistical fantasies. He saw it as a prophecy. And his father, it says, he kept it in mind, meaning he thought that, it could be some emotional, uh, an, an emotional kind of dream that was coming from the, uh, the ego. It could be that there's really some kind of a prophetic meaning here because, again, as Yosef says to Paro, when you have the dream multiple times, it indicates a, uh, that it has more of an indi- a suggestion of, of some kind of a truth, some kind of a message. And since Yosef had it more than once, so seems to indicate that, you know, that it had some truth to it. But that was exactly the argument. And, it, and that's what's so difficult to understand when it comes to dreams. Since we know that dreams, even according to the rabbis, um, and, we, and if you, when you look at the Talmud, the way the Talmud treats dreams, the rabbis assume that most dreams, the majority of dreams, uh, are just expressions of the, of the wishes or the thoughts or the feelings of the person. They don't have any deeper meaning. Um, the, uh, besides that, besides the meaning of getting to know yourself and what they reveal to you about yourself, which can be very deep, but not necessarily prophetic. Um, and then there are dreams that point to something objective outside of you where, uh, it really requires, it would require a person of a certain caliber to have a dream like that. And then it would require a person of a, a certain caliber to be able to understand where the psychological aspect of the dream ends and where the prophetic aspect of the dream or the, or the intuitive um, premonition aspect of the dream begins. And that's why, for example, in, this, in the dream of, of Paro, he dreams that he's standing over the river, which it says, which is a, uh, a reflection of his own ego that the, the pharaohs um, presented themselves as gods who controlled the river and who created the river or whatever of the Nile. So, they, so that, that was just an expression of his own fantasy. On the other hand, part of the dream was true. And the same thing is true in the case of Yosef. The rabbis even say that even Yosef's dreams had an element or had elements that were untrue. For example, it says, that he says that the sun, the moon, and the stars are going to bow to me, 11 stars. And, the, and so, the, and, and that's why uh, Yaakov rebukes him and says, do you think that I and your mother and your brothers are going to bow to you? And Rashi says, why does he say your mother? Because his mother was dead already. Yosef's mother was no longer alive. So obviously his mother could not bow to him because his mother was deceased. 
So, so the, the rabbis say that you see from this that there's no dream, even a dream that has, even a true dream that doesn't have some elements that are fantasies. And obviously, we could see why Yosef would want to fantasize and imagine that his mom would be alive again, just like any person whose mom passed away would want to, would want to dream that. And so the uh, so that element of the dream was the element of the dream that even for Yosef was just an expression of his own hopes and his own wishes and wasn't really part of the prophecy. The question is, where does his hope and wish end and where does reality, something ultimately true, begin? And that's where, um, that's where the machloket, the disagreement between the brothers and Yosef uh, comes out because Yosef will say that there, there's a truth to this dream and Yaakov suspected there was truth to the dream. He wasn't sure. And the brothers were absolutely convinced that this was just Yosef spouting some, you know, egotistical fantasies about how he wanted to tyrannically rule over his brothers and therefore, uh, you know, were afraid of him actually. Um, as a result of that. So that's, you know, but, but I think the, the main point of the, that, that I wanted to bring out here uh, throughout the, um, uh, you know, uh, throughout the, 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 you know, the theme that, that runs throughout the parasha is the role of um, action and dreams. That just like Yosef uh, tells Paro that the dream gives you knowledge, but the action uh, that you have to take uh, is up to you. The same thing applies to Yosef himself. And it's not a critique of Yosef to say that he's playing God, because that's exactly how you achieve what God shows you can be achieved. Um, is by taking the action, using you know to the best of your ability, using the tools that are available to you to try to bring it about. God shows you the the objective, and obviously the aspects that are not in your control. Uh, you know, as Jordan pointed out, the things that are not in your control, um, those are in God's control. There's nothing you can do about that. But you take uh, to the best of your ability what you the action that you can to to achieve the result, and that's what Yosef did, and he succeeded in at least. Um, bringing the brothers to a point where they had, or Yehuda at least, had some kind of a breakthrough uh, in the, um, the brothers as a whole did because they were all willing to give up their freedom and not abandon Binyamin, which was a, a certain level of greatness. And Yehuda, of course, went even beyond that and said, I'll sacrifice my own freedom and independence and uh, in order to preserve the family, in order to preserve my father who really needs to uh, determine the future direction of the family that he was able to bring about um, through all of what he did. And I don't think he was expecting that outcome. And that's why he was so shocked. He was expecting the outcome that hopefully they would recognize him. That didn't happen. But in another way, they achieved a breakthrough that was critical for uh, relationship, uh, uh, the relationship and the unity of the family to, uh, to be reestablished. So yeah, I think the lesson is dreams are great, but, uh, and, and Hashem's promises to us are great. And we can talk about, uh, we want the Mashiach to come and we want uh, kibbutz galuyot and we want the world to be a place of peace and harmony and justice. But if we don't act on those dreams and those promises of the Nevi'im, they're not going to happen. That's why the rabbis say, en Yisrael nigalim ela that the Jewish people are not going to be redeemed until they repent. Repentance is the key. In other words, it's God shows us what will ultimately be, but it's our action that uh, that will make it uh, become a reality. And so that, and we see that from the story of Yosef. So, Bezrat Hashem, next week we will continue uh, with the next part of the story, the reunion, and what we can learn from it. And uh, thanks everyone for joining. And uh, 